You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, today we're going to continue in our series in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in chapter 2. I'm picking up right where Zach left all for us last week. And we're looking at this idea of justice in our world. I don't know what you normally listen to or what type of uh, media you consume, but my wife loves to listen to true crime podcasts. She's always got something playing. She's always listening to something on that. And she does so in an appropriate manner, like not when the kids are in the car, but if I'm in the car, I'm getting it. Like I'm going to be listening to it apparently. And she loves to listen to it. And there's just so many different things you can listen to in that area, but When you listen to them, there's this common theme I think you pick up. There's this constant search for justice in these these documentaries and these podcasts. You know, there's a search for things to be made right. And it's incredible when you listen to some of these podcasts, when you watch some of these documentaries, there's been work that has been done by these people that have seen people being proved innocent. They've seen the victims being acknowledged. They've seen those that have perpetrated evil and crime be brought to justice through some of these. And it's an incredible thing to see. Yet, so often when you listen to them, you see the reality that justice is so often delayed for many, many years. Sometimes justice is never accomplished. I think we're drawn to these types of media sources, these types of stories, because You and I, we long for things to be made right. We're in a constant search for justice, for things to be made right. We love it. We love it when people get what's coming to them. We love it when people are reaping what they've sown. We long for the day when everything is made right and orderly and God has what he wants in this world. You see... I think what we can trace back in our lives is that God has created his world with a longing, with a desire for his order and justice to be made known. Even though we and this world is broken, we look at this brokenness and we go, there has to be something better. There has to be some way that this puzzle piece fits together and things get back to the right place. That begs the question. It's the question that Habakkuk's been asking the entire time. How do we live in a broken world with delayed justice? How do we live in a world knowing that things aren't right? And one day, yes, they will be made right, but that day's not today. How do we live in the midst of that turmoil and distress? Well, I think the thing that Habakkuk is realizing through this story, this journey he's on, is this, that the injustice of men will always fall before the justice of God. The injustice of men will always fall before the justice of God. Habakkuk's on a journey to learn this, and we see this here in the text beginning in verse 6. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, I want to make sure you write down our first point, that is, the injustice of man will not endure. Look with me here at verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. 
For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of all the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. The injustice of man will not endure. You see, as we pick up in this passage, we're reading of God's words to Habakkuk, and he's answering his complaints and his concerns. You see, God is proclaiming several woes that will come to the Babylonians over the coming years. Ultimately, the people of Babylon, they're going to see their foes rise up against them and strike them down. The Babylonians are greedy people. They are the worst of the worst in this time. They've plundered many nations. They've taken land. They've taken money. They've stolen people. They've captured slaves. And they sit in victory today. And God is speaking to Habakkuk and telling him their victory will not last. Now this sounds crazy when we're in the context that Habakkuk's in because Babylon's on the rise right now. They're the greatest nation in this region. They're breaking their subjects with crushing poverty and they're keeping their boot pressed upon them. No one thinks that these people can be stopped. It looks like their reign is going to last forever. Yet, as we sit on this side of this history, do you know how long Babylon reigned over this region? Babylon reigned over this region for about 100 years before they were overthrown by Persia. Persia was one of their subject states, and Cyrus II rebelled against Babylon and said, we will take this no more. And they brought the Babylonian Empire crumbling down. 100 years. Babylon looked like it would reign forever. Like it would be there throughout the ages. Yet, their reign lasted for a generation. A generation of horror and terror. But only a generation. We look at passages like this. And we look at difficult moments in our lives. We look at evil that reigns in our world today. And it's very easy to forget that God is on the throne and that his time and his plan is not our time and our plan. You see, God did not forget the plight of his people or those that were oppressed by Babylon. He never turned his gaze away from this. He never stopped looking at the pain and heartbreak here. But he moved at the right time to bring Babylon down and to bring vengeance upon these evildoers. We have a tendency, we have a tendency in our lives to forget how God works and moves in his world today. We look at evil things occurring in our world and throughout history, and we ask, oh Lord, how long will you let this iniquity reign? Yet throughout history, evil people, Evil empires have not endured forever. If I were to ask you if you could remember where you were when 
9-11 occurred, you can probably tell me in some pretty astounding detail about where you were. You know, I was in seventh grade, and I can remember the first news of the towers being hit, making its way through our middle school at about 9 a.m. that morning. I can remember ending the day in Mr. Hardison's math class at Chesterfield Middle School. I could tell you, I could show you where the room is at the school. They've renovated it. I could still show you where that room is. And even there in seventh grade, not fully understanding the weight of this, seeing the smoke and the debris and the horror of this moment. And in the coming days, we saw multiple terrorist leaders around the world proclaiming this is the end of America. Our radical Islamist sect is going to rise up and take over the world and we will reign forever. Well, that's a terrible moment, wasn't it? Yet here we are 22 years later and how many of those terrorist leaders are still reigning? How many of those religious powers have come into authority and rule over this world? None. Most of those leaders were killed in infighting. Many were killed by our valiant soldiers within the armed forces. Their reign, their rule did not come to pass. As we look at this, we recognize this truth that the world's not perfect. It's not the way we would want it if we could be completely honest. But as broken as our world is, even evil cannot rule forever. Even evil will be brought down in the end. You see, God brings his justice to his people at the right time to ensure that his glory is done. And he ultimately does this for our good. He is a patient, merciful God who works to ensure that ultimately we will all reap what we sow. Ultimately, we will all reap what we sow. You see, that takes us directly to our next point, that the injustice of man will face judgment. Look with me at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The injustice of man will face judgment. Tell you a little bit about the Babylonians. They were really concerned about their legacy. Nebuchadnezzar is the king in this era, and Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to be remembered. He wanted people to proclaim the glory of his reign for generations to come. There were many incredible works in Babylon that they did. You know, you've maybe heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. These are supposed to be one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world. Like, this is a place you had to go see and believe. They built many incredible things, but one of the foremost works that these guys established were the walls around their capital. 
You see, their city was surrounded by multiple walls. Some were as little as a dozen feet thick. Others were over 20 feet thick. They ran over 65 feet in the air. Massive constructs. You see, Nebuchadnezzar built this way to ensure that his city, his people, his legacy would endure to the coming generations. Well, it forces us to ask, how did he do? How did he do? Well, Nebuchadnezzar dies in the early 1550s. And then less than 20 years after his reign is over, Persia takes the city. Those walls that they had built meant nothing. Do you know why? Because they went around them. They stopped off the river that flowed into the moat that surrounded the city and walked right underneath the walls. The city's fallen. You see, at this time, it was one of the largest cities in the known world. Over 200,000 people covering four square miles of land. And today, Babylon is uninhabited, is a wreck and a ruin that no one even can point to on a map. If your legacy is built on the things of this world, it is going to crumble and fail. This is a part of God's justice that evils rule and reign. It's not going to be celebrated in the end. Ultimately, they will be forgotten and made footnotes in history. This is God's judgment against evil. You see, Babylon's legacy, what they were building, was built upon the work of the broken backs of people that they had conquered. God was not impressed by their works, by their city, by anything they had done, because all he could see was their wickedness and depravity. See, God is always going to fight against the wicked and destroy their legacy. The irony in this passage is that the very rocks and stones that Babylon stole in order to construct their walls, to build their great works, to build this city that they thought would endure forever, the very stones that they stole would cry out against them. They can find no peace or justice in this world because of their sin and guilt. You see, God's justice, it will always, always bring judgment to the wicked. Always. Nebuchadnezzar's goal, his desire was to fill the earth with his glory. He wanted the world to know his name. He wanted history to proclaim his greatness. And today... He's a footnote in most history texts. In the end, only God, only God can show the whole world his glory and his power. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a chance. He was going up against the God of the universe, and he believed that he was going to make history. Yet, ultimately, God was working in this world shaping lives, shaping events for his plan and for his purposes. Ultimately, as 
Habakkuk writes here, the only one who will fill the earth with his glory, the only one who will cover the earth like the, uh, the water covers the seas is going to be God himself. And Habakkuk's not just speaking figuratively here. He is speaking literally that one day the world will be covered with the glory of God. I don't know how much you've read in the Bible in your time as a Christian or someone who's seeking faith, but if you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, if you go to the end, we're going to see this picture that God's going to establish a city. This city is going to be called the New Jerusalem. And in this city, all that is done, all that is accomplished, all that is occurring exists for God's glory, not man's glory. From this city, the scriptures tell us, the glory of God will expand. It will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. In the end... God is going to have victory. This tells us that you and I were created for a purpose. We were not created to build a legacy. We were not created to make history. We were not created to accomplish big tasks, though that is something we may do. We were created for one purpose and one purpose only to give God the glory and honor that he's due. We were created to give him the glory and honor he was due. Only what is done for God's glory will last forever. Because what is going to fill the earth is not this earthly kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar's, but what is going to fill the earth is the glory of the Lord. The earth one day will be filled with his glory. And as empires crumble, as walls fall, as the carnage is sorted out, the one who will reign on high will be Jesus. It's because of this, this section of Scripture, how the story ends in Revelation, that we ultimately know that God will have the final word. If you're taking notes, we see that the justice of God will have the final word. Look at Habakkuk 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and so show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Nebuchadnezzar, during his reign, would have 
massive parties to celebrate what he had accomplished. You know, he had the saying among his court that you should eat, drink, and be merry in those times. He wanted people to celebrate his accomplishments. He wanted people to praise him. Perhaps you've picked up that Nebuchadnezzar thought very highly of himself. And in these parties, he would encourage them to eat, drink, and to be merry. He did not do so because he cared for them. He didn't care that they would prosper. He didn't care that they were enjoying themselves. But rather, he desired to rule over them completely and totally. You see, Nebuchadnezzar commanded his court. He called his court to such debauchery and craziness that they would bring shame to themselves. His goal, his desire was to have complete power over them. And he felt that if he could break them enough to give away to their inhibitions, that he could rule completely over them. Because after all, if they're completely broken, then they must be completely his. I think you can see that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a great king. I mean, simply put, he just wasn't a great king. He was a king who was concerned about his rule and reign. He was concerned about his power and his power alone. He wanted no one else to have authority and power because it was his. From what we can read in the scriptures and from historical work, Nebuchadnezzar desired for his legacy to last forever. He wanted the world to know his name. He wanted everyone to bow at his feet. You see, Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed having power. He liked having power to do whatever he desired. You see God referencing the forest of Lebanon there. Throughout history, the forest of Lebanon have been one of the wonders of the world. It's been a place where you go to get the best timber. The forest of Lebanon were filled with what we believe were trees that we could describe like California redwoods. I mean, massive trees that were going into the sky. I mean, these incredible things to look upon. Well, today, the forest of Lebanon cover about 250 acres when they once covered thousands upon thousands we can actually historically trace back the devastation of the forest to Nebuchadnezzar. Not because he had a need, not because he was building great things, but he burned the forest because he could. He slaughtered animals, not for his own gain, not for the people's needs, but because he could. He destroyed one of the wonders of the ancient world simply because it made him happy. Nebuchadnezzar was an idol worshiper. He encouraged his people to worship idols as well. Marduk was the chief god in the pantheon of gods for the Babylonians. Marduk was considered to be the king of gods, the chief of all of them. Nebuchadnezzar told the people and traced his authority directly to this god. He told everyone that he was descended from this God and that gave him his right to rule and reign over them. He required offerings both to his father God and to himself to ensure that he was happy with his people. Here we have a king who is obsessed with power, who cares only for his own self-image, 
and is ultimately abusing authority for his own benefits. Simply contrast that with our king, Jesus. Jesus who suffered abuse for our benefit. Jesus who went to the cross innocent on our behalf. Jesus who lived the perfect life that you and I could not and cannot so that we might be able to call his father our father. This type of behavior brings a righteous anger to the forefront of God's words. You see, God is rightly angry about this abuse of authority. And he proclaims to the people of Babylon here that one day you too will drink from this cup of shame. One day you will endure the wrath of God and it will be a horrible day. One day you will reap what you have sown and you will pay for your sins. The wrath of God is going to find its way to them one day and all of the gods and their pantheon of gods are powerless to protect them. You see, it's a promise of God that those who use and degrade people, they will one day face judgment for their actions. This passage ends with a call from God to, to look to Him, to look at Him in His glory and His grace. You see, as God is writing these words to Habakkuk, giving him the words to write down, God recognizes that He has no rivals. He has no rivals. He has no competition. He is in control. Though the world is spinning wildly and things look chaotic and messy, He is still working in it. He is still at work in His world and His creation. And we see Habakkuk shift his tone a bit here. That he goes from what we would describe as anxiety and fear to rest and trust despite his confusion. As we look at those last words, as we consider these ideas, I, I can't help but think of the cross when I read these verses. You see, we look at the cross and without wisdom and faith from God, what we see is that evil's one. I mean, after all, consider this, that Jesus was unjustly condemned. He went to the cross, an innocent man, and he was put to death. Satan was surely dancing with joy over this, and it looked like victory had occurred. It looked like God was no longer in control and Satan would reign forever. Yet, we look back upon the cross, knowing the full story of God that He promised all the way in the garden to Adam and Eve that one day Satan would bruise his Savior's heel, but that Savior would crush Satan's head. You see, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of the story of the Bible, God predicted, He told His people, things are messed up, things are broken, but I will have victory. One day, I will destroy Satan and his forces. 
One day sin will be no more. And one day you will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth with me. And you'll be made complete. Justice will be accomplished. Vengeance will be mine. Things will be right once again. You see, God used the death of his son Jesus to ultimately destroy Satan, to end sin, and to free us from death. At the cross, justice was served. He used his son's death to adopt us, broken sinners, people who are unworthy of the grace of God, into his family, so that Jesus would look upon us and call us brother and sister. So that we could look upon God the Father and call him Father. I would submit to you that if Habakkuk could stand before us and if he could give us some words of wisdom, if he could encourage us in this time, he would tell us that when life looks like it's falling apart, when the world looks like it's spinning out of control, when things seem like they are hopeless, remember that the injustice of man will fall before the justice of God. Trust that he has a good plan. No matter the adversary, no matter the situation, justice will be served. This is the great hope of the gospel of Jesus. This is the great hope of the cross, that God can use evil for his good. God can use evil for our good. This is the message of hope in the cross. That you and I, as broken sinners, can have hope and life. The way we find this hope and life is through this path of calling upon Jesus. Confessing our sin before him and calling out to him for forgiveness and righteousness. And today we have an opportunity to do that. Amidst all the turmoil, all the evil, all the distress in this world, we still have a solid rock to stand upon, and his name is Jesus. And so today, if you're here and you're wondering what will sustain you, what will anchor you, what can give you hope in this world when all seems hopeless, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so here in the next few moments, as we continue our time of worship through song, I would invite you to call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness, for hope, and for life. If you need someone to speak to about this, you're welcome to connect with myself or Pastor Brian. You can reach out to us online. You can send us an email or a text. We frankly don't care. We want to hear from you if the Lord is working and moving in your life in whatever way you want to connect with us. But if I may, I want to pray for us to prepare our hearts to continue to worship the Lord through song. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you as, as hungry people. Perhaps physically hungry, Lord, but... Most importantly, we are hungry for things to be made right. We dwell under injustice, under difficulty and hardship. 
We see the brokenness and evil in the world and we simply ask, Father, when will you free us from these things? When, Father, will you come back making things right once again? And Lord, we rest in this truth that you have promised us through your word that you will not return until all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, has had opportunity to hear the good news of what our Savior Jesus has done for them. So Lord, we rest in this moment of, yes, desiring for evil to end, but praying that you would let us fulfill the Great Commission so that evil might end. Father, let us rest in this truth that you are restraining yourself so that more people may know of your glory and your great name so that the earth could be filled with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Father, it is our prayer that you would move and work in our hearts and minds. Let us be receptive to what the Spirit is doing. Lead us to repentance where we need to repent. Convict us, Lord, where we are unwilling to freely go to repentance. And Father, shape our hearts and minds so that we live and breathe the very words of the gospel. Lord, today we pray that you would bless us with your presence. Let us experience the power of your grace and mercy and sing as people who have been rescued and redeemed from the curse of sin and death. Let us rejoice in your goodness today, singing this hymn of heaven, Lord. Father, we're grateful for you. We pray that you would bless us in this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.